we are a band of brothers, diverse yet unified, aligned to pursue the truth, resolute in our commitment. We are stronger together, and you are one of us. This is the Brotherhood Podcast. Brothers, welcome to the podcast. Today we get to tune in and listen to our December breakfast with Pastor Willie George. Let's tune in and listen to his message to the Brotherhood. All right. When I get a chance to talk to difference makers, and that's what dads are, that's what men are, they're difference makers. You have more influence than you realize, way more. And I'm going to talk to you about the way God brought me into his family, how he began to shape my relationship with him. It was a little bit difficult because I was confused. I didn't get what I expected. I built my expectations on what I heard people say. You're going to feel like a thousand pounds is lifted off your shoulders when you accept Christ. So I walked forward in a crusade in Irving, Texas, 150 or so kids in the room that did the same thing I did, 2,000 people in attendance. I went to the basement to pray and felt absolutely nothing. I was so disappointed because everywhere I looked, somebody was crying. Even guys were crying. Everybody had tears in their eyes, but not me. And so I prayed the prayer, but I was full of doubt. I wondered if God took me. I thought I've told one too many sacrilegious jokes. I have uh, maybe been uh, a rougher sinner than, than he forgives. I didn't feel a thing. So I was determined I wanted to go to heaven. So I came back again another night to the crusade, walked the aisle again, and prayed the same prayer again and again. Didn't feel the thousand pounds going away. Didn't feel anything. And I thought, what's wrong with me? And again, the room was full of people who were crying and very much moved, but not me. And so I'm desperate. I come back on Sunday morning and uh, bring friends. There are five or six of us sitting together. Again, I didn't walk the aisle, but I didn't feel anything. I went back to my grandmother's church. It was a Pentecostal church, uh, 21 miles away over in Fort Worth, and I knew that they believed in feeling at grandma's church because I'd seen it when I was a little kid and visited there. They're very emotional. And, you know, Pentecostals are, are like that, and the Baptists are not like that. And so I thought maybe I'll feel something if I go to the Pentecostal church. They, they don't always get along, but they do work together because the Pentecostals don't believe in outreach and the Baptists don't believe in prayer. So... <clears throat> My grandma's church prayed a lot. These people prayed all the time, and I know they prayed for me, but they didn't come and get me uh, because had they come, I wouldn't have gone anywhere with them. They were a little bit too strange. But the Baptists had a great outreach program, and they knew how to connect with people, and they understood the value of influence. And so God never lets those prayers go to waste. So the Pentecostals pray, and the Baptists go act on the prayers and win a lot of people to Christ. At least that's what they used to do. And so I got saved in that Baptist church, and I'm forever grateful for them because they came and got me. That night when I went to Grandma's church, I went down to the altar and began to pray, and I'm pouring my heart out to God, asking for him to show me, move on me. And what I'm really asking for is an emotion. 
I'm asking for a feeling. And that night he humored me and I did have a feeling and I began to cry and I felt the presence of the Lord and, and the pastor came and laid his hands on me while I was there at the altar. And uh, anyway, uh, my, my spiritual journey began, but the unfortunate thing is the next morning I felt absolutely nothing, nothing. And so I thought, what gives? There was a roller coaster. Sometimes I could feel God, sometimes I felt nothing. And so I began to try to gauge my relationship with the Lord on the basis of what I was feeling. I still hear it today in the prayers of people who mean well. I'm not putting you down, but I want to help you reshape your thinking. You pray, Lord, be with us. Be with us, Lord. But he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you even unto the end of the age. He was with me and he heard me the first night that I prayed. Only I did not know how to connect. And can I tell you that when you walk with God, you're going to walk with him on his terms. You don't get to define how this relationship works. And I can tell you from experience that his way is absolutely the best way. It's so much better than anything that you have in mind for yourself. The relationships he will lead you to are so much better than any relationships that you would pick. He has a tremendous life for you. But in order to receive it, you've got to learn how to respond to him. You've got to learn what your comeback is when God begins to work on you. And that comeback is believing the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now a person who diligently seeks God is a person who puts in more than one encounter or you do it more than once. That's what I did. I was diligently seeking God. But I was wrong in that I was seeking a feeling. I wanted to feel his presence. When I felt that a few times and didn't have it continue, my next thought was I'd like to see Jesus. And being in Grandma's Pentecostal church, I heard that there were people who had had visions. And so I wanted to have a vision. I asked the pastor if I could stay at the altar and pray all night. Could he let me spend the night in the church? And some other people heard about it, a couple of friends and some older men. And so there were five or six of us who were going to pray all night long. About five o'clock, we gave up and went to another guy's house to eat bacon and eggs uh, because Jesus never showed. I was certain that if I could show him I was really serious about this, he would humor me and appear to me. It's not a whole lot different than uh, some of the tribal cultures that want to have a vision and, and deny themselves for several days and go out on their own and in a vision quest. That's what I was doing. And I was demanding that God meet me on my terms. This is what I had in mind for him showing me that he was real. I want to see something. I want to see a sign. And I had no idea how this process of faith and believing worked. Because you don't believe with your feelings. You don't even believe with your head. 
The Bible says in Romans 10, 10, for with the heart man believeth. It's the deepest part of you. It's the engine. Your automobile may have a number of electronic systems. It may have an air conditioner, radio, other things like that. Your seats may move automatically, electronically. But what makes your car go is what's under that hood. And that's the case with your spirit or your heart. Your spirit, heart, are where things happen. It's where the most important activity takes place. But a lot of people do not know what believing is. After all, it's quite an abstract word. What does it mean to believe? Do I believe? I think I believe. I want to believe. But what is believing? How do I know that I am? And so this message is designed to show you how we develop faith. First of all, God is the one who puts faith in our hearts. You're not born with it. You don't have faith naturally. Second Thessalonians 3, 2, for all have not faith. Some do, some don't. If God gives faith to some and not others, then he's unfair. So why is it that some people have faith? And it is because they have experienced the process. The Bible says in Habakkuk 2, 4, but the just shall live by his faith. So get this straight. Your, your faith, if you have it, is not yours and you didn't start it. It's alone to you from God. The just shall live by his faith. All faith is imparted by him. Hebrews 12, 2 says, we look to Jesus, the author and the finisher, or as the late John Osteen said, the author and developer of our faith. He develops our faith. God has a program for your faith. He may develop your faith in a totally different way than he develops my faith. It didn't take but maybe a couple of years for me to walk with God, and he began to develop my faith to reach children. And I can tell you that not many people in the church, and certainly not many men in the church, wanted to have anything to do with kids, because people thought, and men especially, that if you work with kids, it's because you can't cut it anywhere else. Now, I knew that I was supposed to be a pastor, but that time had not come. I was not ready. I knew that. But I needed to do something. And one day when I went back to help in the children's church, I saw a need. And I felt like it would be something I could do without messing up the rest of my life. Now, I didn't hear an angel, didn't see one, didn't have an audible voice. I just saw two little Mexican boys in our children's church wrestling with each other on the back row because the lesson was so boring. And so I went to the pastor and said, can I have the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders and do a children's church? He said, let me think about it. Maybe less than an hour, they let me know you can have them. <laughs> I took those kids and I would like to say that I taught them, but I really didn't. They taught me. As I started teaching them, I started seeing they don't learn like grownups do. So I went to the grocery store and bought some baggies. That's what they used to call them, baggies. Some Cairo syrup, some red food coloring, a can of white spray paint, some masking tape. Went back to the church and I filled that baggie with Cairo syrup and poured the red food coloring in it, made me a packet of blood. I wrapped it with newspaper in the shape of a lamb, used the masking tape to make the legs and the tail and the head. 
when I got the whole thing done, I spray painted it white. And the next Sunday I preached on Jesus, the lamb of God. I took my knife and plunged it into the middle of that lamb and the blood went all over the place and those guys' eyes got really big. And all of a sudden, I learned the secret of ministering to kids, especially those who ride buses. You need to kill something in front of them. <laughs> Not long after that, I talked about be careful who you hang around with. And I did a message on Samson and Delilah. I got a styrofoam wig head. I spray painted it to look like human flesh. I glued a couple of marbles into the eye sockets. And I had a wig on the thing and I talked about how Samson had amazing strength until he lost his hair or ripped off the wig. And then I took a propane torch and a spoon. I bent the spoon so it looked like some kind of a tool. But I bent it and I heated the, 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 the bowl of the spoon till it got red hot and I popped it into that styrofoam wig head and popped the two eyeballs out on the floor. And again, I had the attention of the class. <laughs> Don't hang around with the wrong people. So I learned something about ministering to kids. That's how God developed my faith. I had faith to reach kids. I found out that loads of people didn't. To this day, many people don't. But I took this as a crusade across America and trained over 250,000 children's workers. And I'm happy to say that there were thousands of men who jumped into the ranks of ministering to kids because of what they saw in me. And I gave them faith from the word of God because I showed them that on seven different occasions in the gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus talked about children or he ministered to children. That's more than he ministered to the blind. That's more than he ministered to lepers. That's more than he ministered to any other class of people. So if you want to have the real ministry of Jesus somewhere in the mix... Somebody ought to have a children's ministry. That's how God developed my faith. Faith does not come by witnessing the miraculous. Pharaoh himself saw not the moment that it happened, but the immediate aftermath of the parting of the Red Sea. With his own eyes, he saw a dry seabed. With his own eyes, he saw two walls of water. With his own eyes, he saw the footprints of three million Hebrews who had crossed the Red Sea, but yet he did not believe. Abraham said that sinners do not even believe even if a person comes to them who has been raised from the dead. There's a parable in the gospel of Luke, the 16th chapter, where a rich man died and went to hell, but across the gap, there was a place called paradise or Abraham's bosom. And he pleaded with Abraham to send the beggar that he had neglected while the beggar lived, send him to my five brothers, tell them not to come to this place. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. And the rich man said, but they'll believe if one comes to them from the dead. But this is the answer that Abraham gave, and it's quoted by Jesus. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. The scripture makes it very, very clear 
that a miracle does not bring someone to faith. There are plenty of people who've seen miracles and yet never have had faith. Seeing is not believing. Jesus' own disciples had heard five times in the Gospel of Matthew alone that he would rise from the dead, be crucified, be rejected. But they were distraught after the crucifixion. They were in hiding. They thought the whole thing was over. They didn't know what to do with themselves. And they had heard rumors that he was raised from the dead, but they still did not believe. In fact, two men came to them that evening on that Sunday night and told them, we saw the Lord. And they didn't believe it. And the scripture says, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace be to you. He was there in person. It says Jesus himself came. It wasn't a vision. They were overcome with doubt and fear. Nobody was glad. Nobody embraced him. The Bible says they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? He said, behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I, once again, it's not a vision, myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. These nail prints were there for a purpose. Because he was showing them the last thing that they had seen of him. They were not the ones who took his body off the cross. They did not see him laid in the tomb. The last time they saw him, the nails were in his hands. So had he appeared without the nail prints, they might have had a question as to whether or not it was really Jesus. But I want to say something else to you. Could not God who had healed his body and raised him from the dead, could not God have closed the holes? And the answer is absolutely, but he chose not to. Because the prints of the nails were proof that the debt had been paid. Now, you older guys will remember this. I grew up going to a lot of cafes and restaurants as a kid because my dad was a professional rodeo cowboy. So we ate out a lot. And so it was not lost upon me what happened when dad went to the register and paid the check that the waitress left at the table. Once he paid the check, the man at the register or the woman would take that paper and slam it down on a spike. And when a receipt has a hole in it, when it has been punched, when a ticket has been redeemed, when a coupon has been claimed, there's a hole that says the debt has been paid. And that's why he showed them his hands and his feet. It's proof that redemption happened. They still did not believe. So then he turned to the next thing. And he had already set the stage for this, beginning in the book of Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 5, when he raised a little girl from the dead and he told her parents immediately, give her something to eat. 
Not long after he raised Lazarus from the dead. And in the very next chapter, Lazarus, who is newly raised from the dead, is sitting at a banquet table eating, i.e. freshly raised people are typically very hungry. And so what I want you to see, he said to them, do you have any food here? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Now this was such a key thing that later when the apostle Peter would preach to Cornelius about proof of the resurrection, here's what he said. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly not to all the people but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Jesus had more than one meal with the disciples. But this physical evidence was still not enough. But something happened because 40 days after this, they were different men. 50 days later, they preached and witnessed on the day of Pentecost and saw 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. So how did he change them. How did he do it? He resorted to a process that God used in the very beginning. It's as old as the world. The scripture says in the book of Genesis that the connection between God and people was not visual, but audible. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. In other words, the presence of the Lord is communicated through words, through his voice. And so now that Jesus has visibly demonstrated the resurrection and given them literal proof, it's still not enough. But he had to do it because he wanted the world to know it was real, it was literal, but now he communicates it in a totally different way. He communicates it spiritually. Because after all, with the spirit, with the heart, man believeth. And you're not convinced just because you see. You're not convinced just because you feel. You're not convinced just because a group of people tell you, you're convinced when you hear for yourself. The scripture says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. First Corinthians 1, 21, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. They did not understand the reality of his resurrection until he gave them his word. So in Luke 24, verses 44 and 45, it says, he said to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. There's a well-known Bible teacher, pastor today who advocates that we abandon the Old Testament, that we don't rely on it, that we don't even get into teaching it. All we really need is the resurrection of Christ. 
I beg to differ on the basis of what we read here. The resurrection of Christ was there in front of them and it still was not enough to convince them. So how did he turn his own disciples? He took them through the Old Testament scriptures and he showed them that everything, every detail, every little thing that happened was written before. They were convinced, not by what they saw, but by what they heard. That's how they were convinced. It's the word of God that changes the hearts of people. And so it's not just physical evidence, although it was very real. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. John's gospel, there's an account of Jesus on the cross. All of the gospels emphasize different elements. But in the gospel of John, the Bible says just before he died, he said, I thirst. And one more time, they lifted up a sponge to give him to drink, and he took it. They had done it before. The first time, it was drugged, was laced with myrrh. Had he taken it, he would have been out of his mind. It would have eased the pain, but Jesus didn't want to be out of his mind on the cross. He wanted to have full control of his faculties. So he rejected the sponge more than once. But he also knew this. The scriptures said that he would drink it. And so he knew they wouldn't offer it again unless he did something. So he said, because he understood the importance of everything being fulfilled, I thirst. And when he said that, they lifted the sponge to his mouth again, and this time he drank. And then he cried with a loud voice, and he gave up the ghost. Everything that happened was prophesied. It was all predicted. The word was the source of faith. And the more they studied it, the more they realized he did this, he did that. They found out that it was not only what he did, but exactly when he did it that was important. That he came into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on exactly the day that was given to Daniel, the prophet, by the angel Gabriel. There was a countdown that began the moment the decree was given by Artaxerxes II, Artaxerxes Longimaeus, to go back and restore the city of Jerusalem. And that began a clock. In 483 years to the day, he entered the city as king. So he kept every detail and he points to the word as being the source of our faith. If you want faith, you're going to have to learn to have a relationship with the word. And can I tell you, coming to church is only what gets you started. A lot of people are confused about what happens when they read their Bibles. Some of you might say, you know, I read my Bible. I can't tell that I get anything out of it. I don't really feel anything. I would ask you this question for those of you who are familiar with firearms. Does your gun go off when you put the bullets in the magazine? When you put a bullet into the cylinder of a pistol, 
does the bullet explode and go off? You better hope it doesn't. You see, the power of the bullet is not felt until the time of combat, until the time of struggle. So when you're reading your Bible in private and you're praying and meditating, very often you do not feel anything great. It's when you have to stand on that scripture later that the great impact begins to happen. But there are three things that happen when you read the word. And the first one is this. The more you read the word and the way you pause and think about it, the first thing that happens to you is that you gain understanding. You can't keep it if you don't understand it. You have to begin to understand it, and God will give you understanding of it if you will pause a little bit while you're reading and begin to think about it. You understand. That's the first thing. Number two, the scriptures say this about themselves. It's found in Psalm 119, that when you read the word, God gives you an overriding comfort. Now, let me explain what that means. You can have an overriding comfort even when things are not comfortable. You can have an overriding comfort deep in your heart when things around you are swirling. You can have an overriding comfort because down deep inside you know that you are connected to God. He has said something to you. His word is sure. And even though you're being challenged right now, you know it will be okay because you have put his word in your heart. It brings overriding comfort. And finally, the great thing about the word is this. When you read it and sit and think on it, it does something very subtle to you. It puts power into your spirit. You know, we read the story of David and Goliath as if, you know, it was just God took the whole thing over. But I want to tell you something. When I read the story, what I am struck by is the remarkable confidence that a 17-year-old kid had without one adult anywhere near him providing one echo of support or belief or agreement in prayer. Not one adult is doing right. David is on his own. And I'm struck by the amazing confidence I'm struck by the fact that he was able to look into the eyes of Israel's king and speak words of faith to him and comfort him and perhaps even know that the king was a coward because for 40 days and nights, Goliath called out for Saul to come. He was the champion taller than any other man in Israel, but he wouldn't fight. But David was not affected by his cowardice I'm impressed by that. And when David went down to face the giant once again, he is not perplexed. He's not the least bit fearful. This shows me something about the power of the word of God. First of all, David understood covenant. He understood that the Philistines were trespassing. He understood that they were on soil that was clearly given to Judah. He understood continuance. 
He understood that God didn't do all of those miracles at the Red Sea and the possession of the land of Canaan and the driving out of the giants. He understood God didn't do all that to dump them in front of one shorter giant than the ones they'd faced before. He understood continuance. This just doesn't make sense. David understood that the lion and the bear in his own life were not just accidental happenings, that they were things that David could mark, the lion, the bear, and when he goes to the battlefield and he sees the giant, he sees trajectory. Did God start me with these things to dump me as a dead teenager in front of a heathen man? He understood something about the character of God. Understanding is the first thing you get when you read your Bible. Secondly, he had an overriding comfort, and we know this by the words that he spoke. He was cool and calm and collected. And thirdly, he had power. I don't believe the slinging of the rock was a miracle. I don't believe that at all. I think it was something that a number of people could have done had they been calm and collected. Earlier, the scriptures talk about 700 men of Israel who could sling stones at a hair and not miss. David had a lot of time to develop skill in slinging rocks. If you've ever been to Israel and seen where those Arab shepherd boys keep the sheep and goats, you understand why kids get into throwing rocks. There's lots of boredom and there are lots of rocks. David was an expert. But the fact that he was able to do it without distraction and in total confidence is remarkable. He had the power of God on him to do what he did. So that's what happens when you read the word. And that's how you'll begin to know God. And if you try to know him by your feelings or by someone else's feelings or by attending a meeting where everything is boisterous and everybody's emotional, there's a certain amount of crowd enthusiasm that can rub off on you, but you'll always have secondhand faith. You'll never be the pillar that God raised you up to be. You'll never be the one who's calm in the face of a storm. You'll always have to go to someone else to prop you up. But when you know that with the heart man believeth, and when you know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, then you'll have confidence in that process. I pray you develop that. Thank you very much.